0: There was once a man who had two sons. He went to the older one and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. I don't want to, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. Yes, sir, he answered. But he did not go. Which of these two did what his father wanted? And they answered the older one. Jesus said to them, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, that's, I've always found that a very fascinating statement to even suggest that the prostitutes and uh, the riffraff of the culture will even be going to heaven. Even. Much less for Jesus to say they'll go before you do. But we'll deal with that in just a minute. Tax collectors, prostitutes, they'll, they'll get there before you do. And then Jesus gives the rationale for the statement he, he made. He said, for John the Baptist came to you showing you the right path to take. And you would not believe him but the tax collectors. And the prostitutes believed him. So there's the answer to that dilemma is they didn't go as tax collectors and prostitutes. But they go as converted people from their sins. And even when you saw this, Jesus said, you did not later change your minds and believe him. Now I'm just going to quickly uh, pull three important truths out of this short passage. And the first one is actually related to the last statement I read. And that is, you are accountable for having heard the truth. It would be better for you if you didn't know the truth than to know the truth and not do it. And that's not really contained within the parable, but it's in the follow-up to the parable when Jesus looks at the Jewish leaders and he says, here's your problem not only have I demonstrated that the repentant tax collectors and prostitutes have a much better chance of getting to heaven than you do, which was a real slap in the face to the Jewish leaders, but he said your problem is that you know and you don't do better. The problem is that even after you saw The tax collectors and the prostitutes and the lowly people finding forgiveness of their sins, finding repentance. Even after you saw the change in them, you didn't do anything better or different yourself. So the first point I make is you are accountable for what you see and what you know. And Jesus was holding them accountable for what they had seen. He said, you saw it, that should have done something to you, and it didn't do anything to you. Now, one of my frustrations as a pastor is when I lay the truth out and it just bounces off people. You know, you expect the power of the truth to have results, to have an impact. Yet, whenever you lay the truth out and it doesn't impact people that it should have an impact on, that's frustrating Of course I can't force anybody to change, but you've got the power of the Word. The Word is quick, it's alive, it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. What kind of resistance does it take to resist against the power that is contained in God's Word and hear the truth and say, I don't believe, I care. I don't want to let that take root in my heart, and my life, I just want to keep on living like I'm living. And I don't know what all rationale and reasoning goes on in people's minds to get up from a church, from the hearing the preaching of the truth and walk out and totally disregard it and say, I don't care. But the alarming thing is, is one day we'll all stand before God and God can very well remind each one of us do you remember that time when you heard the truth yet you did nothing about it talk about having no comeback no excuse before God when he nails us in that moment and said you heard you knew better and you didn't do better now that's not just for the sinners changing that's for people who proclaim to be Christians going to the next level. You know better. You're expected to keep growing and maturing. But if you refuse to let the truth of the gospel get into your heart, get into your life, and change you, you're stagnant, you're stalemated, you're going nowhere. We have to be open to letting the truth change us and improve us. So you are accountable for the truth that you have heard. The second thing I want to take out of this is a very simple concept, and that is repentance, is absolutely vital. And Jesus employs in this parable a brilliant tactic. I'm not going to reveal it to you yet, but keep that in mind. He employs this brilliant tactic in not only the parable, but in his follow-up explanation to the parable. Now before I get to revealing that tactic, I'm going to back up a little bit and give you a lead in to what caused Jesus to even share this parable. So we go back a few verses in the 21st chapter of Matthew, and we pick up the situation that spawned this parable. After his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus enters into the temple and there he finds what we commonly known as money changers. People who are offending Jesus and offending God because they have brought their corrupt business into the temple. Now for those of you don't don't know what the money changers were doing there is they were making a dishonest exchange of currency so that people coming in could purchase whatever sacrifice that they needed to purchase a pigeon, a dove, or whatever and then make their sacrifice. But they were the middlemen and they were taking advantage of people coming in. They were the money changers, not giving them a fair exchange for their money in order to make this happen. So it was a crooked business that was going on in the temple area and Jesus goes into the temple he sees the money changers and this is the part that really I admire about Jesus because when we talk about Jesus we typically get this image in mind about him being a very meek and mild and tender and loving and calm kind of a person he's just a he's just the ultimate Mr. Rogers right yet we get this this revelation of Jesus They don't even think of him in these terms going in, and he sees what's going on in what he calls my father's house. And he starts getting violent. I think that's a fair word to use. He takes a whip, and he starts swinging and slashing the whip around. I have no proof he actually hit anybody, but they didn't know that he wouldn't hit them. And he's cracking this whip and he's kicking the tables over and merchandise is going everywhere and money is going everywhere and nobody, there's a lot of money changers there, and nobody has the authority to stop him. Now they probably had the manpower to stop him. But there's something about authority, isn't there? They had the manpower but they did not have the authority and they could not stop him from totally disrupting and, uh, and overturning their business and he drives them out and he rebukes them and he said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now I think that would be fun sometimes to have that kind of authority when you see the wrongdoing that's going on in the world and just little old me, I waltz in there and I just turn over the whole place. Get out of here! But they would turn on me. That doesn't work because I don't have the kind of authority Jesus had. Yet, Jesus was able to get away with destroying their, their, their business, just turning into chaos and chasing them out. Having cleared the temple of these invaders, Jesus then restores the temple to its appropriate usage. A place where people can meet God and not be cheated and swindled by these money changers that were there. The blind and the crippled, then after Jesus cleared the temple, I think it's very significant, what happened? It turned into the kind of place the temple was supposed to be a place where people can meet God. So the blind and the crippled came to Jesus once he purged it and got all that junk out of it. And he healed them. I think if we did some purging in the churches today, we would give a whole lot more room for God to do his work. Now, I typically don't like to spend a lot of time, I'm very cautious about Being critical of other ministries but some things just bug me and I see churches getting into gimmicks and things trying to because the whole mentality is how can we make the church grow well I'm, I'm probably you might be sorry to learn that's not my interest I know a lot of ways to make the church grow none of them do I approve of We could have free beer next Sunday and pack the place out. I'm not going to do that. We could have a Christian strip show next week and pack the place out. You wouldn't be here. But somebody take your place. But we're not going to do that. There's a lot of ways to grow a church. But that's not the goal, is it? It's about growing people. So I see all these churches doing all these weird things just trying to get a crowd, trying to make the church grow. And I just can't get my teeth into that. I'm just I'm just old-fashioned enough, just plain enough to believe that the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the truth being preached is enough to do the work of God to whatever extent He wants to do it in my presence. And so all we have to do is just be faithful to those things. God will do His work. He didn't tell me I had To grow the church. He told me I had to disciple people. That is the great commission. To grow people. So that's what I'm doing today. I'm growing people. Not trying to fill in the green. Just trying to mature people enough. So they can walk this Christian walk successfully. And make the entrance into heaven. At the end of his life. So without. I don't think I'll even mention what other churches are. Or what I've seen in this past couple of weeks. But it just grieves me to think this this just looks like the turning the church into things that it's not intended to be turning it into a party, turning it into a a commercial operation, uh, turning it into a corporation that, that calls on Madison Avenue to make a success out of them. This is the house of the Father. And I think if we cleanse out those things that are not supposed to be there, it doesn't matter who's there, it's going to make more room and a more pleasing place for God to come and meet with the people who want to meet with him. Now that's what Jesus did with the temple. And then whenever the Jewish leaders heard that Jesus had kicked the money changers out of the temple and immediately healed people, they sent a little entourage down there the next day. And they approached him and they said, who gave you the authority to do this? Now I find that question fascinating. Because I know who gave him the authority to do that. They were so blind, they did not understand he, the son of God, had the authority to take care of his father's house. So they challenge him. And furthermore, you have to understand that they are in a predicament here. Because they have to know in their heart... That that was not right to let those money changers in the temple. But you know how many years that had been going on and nobody did anything about it? The Jewish leaders never did anything about it. They just let it exist. They let it get worse and worse. We have a problem at the temple, but who's going to take care of it? Well, I'm not going to take care of it. And Jesus comes along and he takes care of it. And they are embarrassed, humiliated that the right thing was done. But they didn't do it. And even if they supported the money changers being there. That would have been an embarrassment too. Because how can they defend that? There's no defense to them being there. So they come to Jesus. Who gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you that right? To do these things. And these things refers to both the cleansing of the temple. And who gave the authority to heal people. Uh, Who would ask Jesus a question like that? You heal somebody and you want to make a big deal out of it. Let's don't talk about the fact they were healed. Let's talk about who gave the authority to do that. Now that's not the only time the Jews challenged his authority to forgive sins or to heal people. And they ignored the real issue that he was accomplishing something of a spiritual uh, dimension in these people. Yet they didn't want to talk about that. Let's don't talk about the fact he's healed. Let's don't talk about the fact he's forgiven. Let's talk about who says you can do this. Well, I think the fact that I just did it testifies I had the authority to do it. He had a lot of problem with all these Jewish leaders who were constantly picking at him. So when they confront him about cleansing the temple without an authorized permit, <laughs> who, who, who wrote you the permit to do this? And they found him healing people. We know from other accounts of this scene that the Jews already chafed at him, suggesting he had the power to forgive sins. This is when Jesus, being challenged by them, brings up the ministry of John the Baptist. And he says, Well, I will tell you if you tell me first. Let's talk about John the Baptist. Is he from men or from God and they talked among themselves and they knew they were in a tight predicament now because scripture says if we answer he's from God you know he's going to say then why didn't you believe him and if we say he's from men then the people are going to turn on us because they think he's from God and we're going to lose the support So they went back to him and they said, we refuse to answer you. And he said, fine enough. I'm not going to tell you where I got the authority to do this. Now we see the brilliant tactic that Jesus used. And that is, rather than defending his ministry, he put John the Baptist's ministry as a buffer between them. Whenever they were challenging Jesus... He used the ministry of John the Baptist to be the issue. And so, instead of telling them where they got their authority, he just says, I want to know what you think of John the Baptist. This is where he uses that brilliant tactic in making John's ministry the focus. And not his own ministry. Well, he was brilliant. He never promoted himself. Unlike preachers today. That uh, you know. I'm going to tell you another thing that bugs me. Preachers that have their own ministry for God. God I'm going to start a ministry for you. And I'm going to name it after me. I don't like that. Scott Rook's ministries. Just has a clumsy ring to it. I don't like that. I wouldn't name a church after me. I wouldn't name a ministry after me. But it doesn't seem to bother a lot of preachers. It just annoys me. I like the motto of John the Baptist. He must increase. What do I have to do? I have to decrease. Let Jesus be Lord of all. Let me be nothing let him be everything. So he accuses the Jewish leaders of not receiving the message of John. Even in this, this not only did he do that back whatever he challenged them about where did you get the authority but when he in this parable that's when he said John the Baptist preached and you didn't receive him. Jesus didn't say, I came preaching and I'm telling the truth and you didn't receive me because that wouldn't have been as powerful as John who had already been a dividing uh, force, a a polarizing force in that day and age. So Jesus brilliantly brings John into focus here. And he didn't say, you didn't listen to me. He said, you didn't listen to John. Twice he has appealed to the ministry of John. They don't know what to do with that. They've already proved they can't even answer that question. The third point of the first parable is simply the point that we learn from this. The importance of finishing well. And the scripture says, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. The door would eventually swing wide for the Gentiles. And they would excitedly embrace this good news. Propelling them far ahead of the stodgy old Judaistic religion. It didn't matter that the Jews had hundreds of years' head start in serving Jehovah. The new converts to Jesus were just about to run circles around them. It didn't matter that the Jewish leaders considered themselves spiritually elite. The fact is that their heart was wrong with God, and Jesus said, You don't have any credit with God. You've got all this spiritual pedigree, I guess. That you rely on. But it's going to be simply the tax collectors and the prostitutes who have been forgiven of their sins. They are the ones that will go into heaven. And you'll still be down here spinning your wheels. Because you have never come to the point of understanding you too have to have forgiveness. Your religion won't get you to heaven. Your church attendance won't get you to heaven. Owning a Bible doesn't get you to heaven. Being a basically good decent kind hearted person doesn't get you to heaven. You need To have the encounter with Jesus where you know that your sins have been forgiven, washed in the blood. You've been declared forgiven and clean. And then, and only then, do you have entrance into eternal life and into heaven. The Jewish leaders did not understand that. Jesus did not make a reference in the parable to the disobedient son being disowned. In the application of the parable to his listeners, Jesus allowed a time for the change of mind of those who were listening to him. So he wasn't just disowning them. He was a God of mercy and grace. He was allowing them a time to change. He was addressing them. He was he came into his own. I mean, he was ministering to his own. He said, you, you, you need to change. And the parable wasn't... Demonstrating that the disobedient son was disowned there was a patience. And Jesus was patient with the Jewish leaders. And not, not all the Jews rejected him. There were some Jewish leaders who turned to the faith. They just aren't the ones that are highlighted in the New Testament because they aren't the ones that gave him trouble. But there were some who turned to him. But those who would not turn to him, those are the ones that he continued to have patience with, yet they wouldn't change. What God wants, we learn from the parable. As one son is compelled to go work, and he says, I don't want to, but later he has a change of heart, and he goes to work. The other one says, yeah, I'll do it, but he was lying through his teeth. And then he said, I changed my mind, don't think I want to go. And what we learn from that is, God doesn't want empty promises. If that son thought he could impress his father by telling him, Yeah, I'll go do it, and then the father would never notice he didn't, he was self deluded. But how many Christians are suffering under just as severe a self delusion? as they do mouth service to God and they promise God all kinds of things they're going to do. Come on, people. How many of you have been in a difficult place in your life? And I'm not going to ask you to answer, to raise your hand. That's just a a rhetorical question. How many of you have been in a difficult place in your life and you have promised God all kinds of stuff in that moment? Yet, how many times did you really follow through with what you promised God. Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll do anything for you. But you didn't. Because that's empty promises. You say you're going to, but you don't. And the ones that are really going to impress God are the ones who maybe at first, they rebelled against God, but eventually, before life was over, they're the ones that turned around and they said yes to God. That's the important thing. It's not just lip service. It's what you ultimately end up doing that matters. The second parable. Jesus spoke again to them in the 33rd verse. and He said, listen to another parable. There was once a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a hole for the winepress and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to tenants, and he left home on a trip. When the time came to gather the grapes, harvest time, he sent his slaves to the tenant to receive his share of the harvest, sharecroppers, right? And the tenants grabbed his slaves, and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. And again, the man sent other slaves, more than the first. And the tenants treated them the same way, and last of all, he sent his son. Surely they will respect my son, he said, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, that's the owner's son. Come on. Let's kill him and we'll get his property. So they grabbed him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now Jesus comes out of the parable and he tests his audience. He said, now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And and the Jewish leaders who are listening to this, they're into this. They've already got an attitude. Their blood is boiling. They, they haven't quite figured out yet how this applies to them. But they're into the story. So they come back with this response. Jesus says, what do you think that landlord would do or should do? And we could even put it in this way. If you were that landlord, what would you do? And... They responded, he will most certainly kill those evil men (laughs) and rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him his share of the harvest at the right time. Now they just sealed their own doom unwittingly. They didn't realize like we realize when Jesus gave this parable who the counterparts were. Like I said, in the parables, when you see a king, typically the king represents God in some aspect, to some degree. You see a husbandman, you see a landlord, you see a landowner, the main big character, a father. This this is always God. And sometimes that landlord has good servants and bad servants. Sometimes it has a good son and a bad son. Uh, It's various scenarios with the the head figure here, but you've got God at the top. So I think it's pretty obvious to see that right now. They hadn't quite gotten a hold of this yet, but we, we can see this coming. And just to make this real simple for everybody here, if you don't understand what the application of this parable is to the Jewish leaders, whenever that land owner rented out, leased out his property to the tenants. The tenants were the Jews. They were put in charge as stewards of God's kingdom. And when the slaves of the landowner were sent at harvest time to be paid their share, to be paid the landlord's share to collect the rent, collect the share of the harvest. They were ki- uh, The slaves were killed. And by application, that is the Old Testament prophets who throughout the centuries had been sent as messengers from the Lord to Israel to demand accountability for their stewardship. And they didn't listen. What they did do is they killed the prophets. You remember when Jesus sat outside Jerusalem and he cried and he said, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks and you would not come to me. Thou that killest the prophets, thou that stonest the prophets and kills them that are said unto thee. So you see, it was all about the Jews Killing the messengers from the landowner. And they still don't have this figured out yet. They're going to in a minute. And then Jesus said after they had killed uh, wave after wave of people who had gone to take care of business, to demand accountability. And they'd killed them all. Then the landowner finally decides in an act of desperation, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect me son. Now that was Jesus being sent by God to demand accountability from the people of God, the Jews. Israel. And they killed the prophets. They didn't have respect for them. And Jesus is sent. And of course they haven't killed him yet. But it's going to happen. This is prophetic. Surely they will respect my son. But in the parable, Jesus reveals what's about to happen in the future. He said they, they, they got jealous and said, We'll kill the son, then we won't have to answer to God. Now, everything doesn't tie over cleanly because the Jews didn't know they were killing God's son. And they didn't know think if they killed God's son they were going to take over anything. But there, there's a slight connection because they wanted Jesus out of the way. He was in the way of them serving God... And having uh, sole access to the religion. Being the the, the big kahunas. And he was getting in their way because he was getting a following and they weren't. They were losing followers. So there was a jealousy that was going on. And they were so into this story... That when he said, what do you think such a landlord should do to people who kills the slaves and kills the landowner's son? Well, he ought to come and he just ought to miserably miserably destroy them. They didn't realize what they were recommending is God ought to come and miserably destroy them because they were rejecting the message. How ironic. And then Jesus said immediately after they recommended that the landowner come and kill these evil men Jesus immediately said haven't you read the scripture that the stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all this was done by the Lord and what a wonderful sight it is so I tell you added Jesus the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce the proper fruits Verse 44 may be in your Bible. It's not found in all manuscripts. So it's, from, it's omitted from many versions. But in that 44th verse, uh, it says that uh, whoever the stone falls on will crush him. And whoever falls on the stone will be ground to powder. Uh, or maybe it's vice versa. It's, but anyway, that is omitted f- from many versions and maybe the version you have because it wasn't enough manuscripts that had that actual verse there to justify putting it in there as definitely a part of the original writing. So then we skip to verse 45 because 44 is missing (laughs) and the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables and knew he was talking about them so they tried to arrest him And they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. So whenever they figured out, he was talking about them. What's the first thing they did? They went right about the process of behaving just like the evil tenants. Talk about getting with the program. And there are some variables to this parable. Variations found in the 12th chapter of Luke. And again in the 24th chapter of Luke. And the difference is that in the 12th chapter of Matthew. 24th chapter of Matthew. In the 12th chapter of Luke and the 24th chapter of Matthew. You'll see a similar parable told. But in those two cases. He's speaking the parable to his disciples. And not to the Jews. So there's a different purpose to it. When he gives the story those times. It's in this passage where it's obvious. He is speaking to the Jews. Both Matthew and Luke include the fact that the trusted servants, mistakenly assuming their master's return was still a long ways off, began to get drunk and vicious and beating the other servants. Now, Matthew's version didn't include that little bit of information. That they assumed, he's going to be gone for a long time. We've got time, not only to kill these people, but we've got time to party. Because it's going to be a long time before he comes. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? I don't know if everybody here does or not. I believe Jesus is coming again. I believe he came the first time in order to be the sacrifice for our sins, and I believe he's coming again to take over this wretched, wicked, wicked world and set everything straight. Jesus is coming again. Yet the problem is when people either refuse to believe he's coming again or they think they've got a lot of time. And either one of those is a desperately wrong mentality. We don't know that we have a lot of time. We are in such a mess in this world today with the world population growing To the point where we don't know how to sustain this population with our resources. Of course there are people who are concerned about running out of clean water, clean air, fuel. We're worried about feeding enough people. Generally what they say is there's enough food in store in the world. That if we equally distribute it and had no more food coming in we could last about 30 days. That's all the food we've got in store. So we've got a lot of problems in this world. We have the ability to literally blow ourselves up. This is the day and age we're living in unlike any other day and age in the history of mankind. Cavemen couldn't blow the world up. You know, it's 21st century man that can do that. We are such a volatile world and things are changing so rapidly and the world is shrinking because of the, the the access to all corners of the world in in hours and because of closing the world in with communications and countries that seem to be so far away and so distant are now just almost in our backyard because of our ability to, to harness the, the, the size of this world with our technology and our transportation and uh, here we are in, in, the, Anybody, do you really think that we're going to meet this day and age soon when there's not going to be any more war, when everybody's going to get tired of bickering and fighting, when there's not going to be any more mad dictators in this world trying to blow everybody up? You really think that's going to happen? It's getting worse and worse. The Bible said it shall wax worse and worse. It didn't say it's going to get better. It's bad for you. It's worse for my kids than it was for me when I was growing up. It's worse for the grandkids than it was for my kids when we were growing up. And my grandkids' children are going to have it worse. It's getting worse. And when people think, he's delayed his coming. He's not coming back at all. It's all a fairy tale. You're sadly mistaken. You're going to be shocked when Jesus shows up. Or if you think it's going to be a long, long time, it's not going to be a long, long time. It's closer than it's ever been before. Now what can I learn from this very quickly? It won't take me long to go through this. Number one, God will judge and either punish or reward people on a case-by-case basis. This truth is set in the framework of stewardship. That's what this whole second parable about is proper stewardship. In this parable, and in the parallel passages in Luke 12 and Matthew 24, the tenants and the servants are given specific responsibilities they are expected to carry out faithfully in the master's absence. Failure in those specific duties is metaphorical for two things. Number one, failure to faithfully execute God's will. And number two, rejection of God's Son. That is the failure It's interesting to note that in the 12th chapter of Luke, the passage there, there's another added bit of information, and it says this. It doesn't say this in Matthew, but it says this in Luke. The servant who knows what his master wants him to do, but does not get himself ready and do it, will be punished with a heavy whipping. But the servant who does not know what his master wants and does something for which he deserves a whipping will be punished with a light whipping. Much is required from the person to whom much is given. Much more is required from the person to whom much more is given. Do you realize, people, this one passage right here is one of the most powerful, informative passages telling us about the degrees of punishment that people will receive in eternity. It means nothing if it doesn't mean that. And unfortunately, we have developed a lot of theology built around clever sayings. So how many of you have ever heard somebody say, you'll go to hell just as quick for lying as you will for murder? Or some variation of that. Have you heard that? If you haven't, you just did. We try to make every sin carry the same weight. Doesn't make any difference if you lie or if you commit the worst sin in the world. You're going to hell. And that just whitewashes a very powerful truth. And that is there is no justice in the liar simply going to hell and the Hitlers of the world simply going to hell. There's no justice in that. God is a just God. And when Jesus included this bit of information, as recorded in Luke, uh, he's indicating that every person is going to be judged individually according to what they did. Now, is there any other scripture in, uh, in, in the Bible that verifies that? Absolutely there is. It's, uh, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty one, 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed, you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon! They would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. Thus, said Jesus, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sion on the day of judgment than for you. What does that mean? More bearable for somebody than for you on the day of judgment simply because they were not as wicked? There's something to consider here. We're not all just going to be swept into a hell and burned up to a crisp just because we barely missed or we missed by a country mile. But God is going to exact reward or punishment based on your life and what you did. Our passage in Luke tells us of one receiving much more severe punishment than another. You'll be personally judged by God. Point number two, good stewardship means faithful to the end. And this was a part of the previous parable as well. Faithful to the end. Faithful to the end. That is a repeating theme in Jesus' ministry and sermons. Here we have things that we ought to highlight. Listen to me. Listen very carefully. If you've ignored the rest of my sermon, tune in for the last two minutes, would you? Listen to these Principles. Listen to these virtues. Endurance. Patience. Stability. Consistency. Focus. These are all vital traits, characteristics of good stewardship. It's when the tenants and the servants begin to take liberties in their master's absence that evil sets in. They lost their perspective in their master's absence. And people do lose their perspective so easily. They don't think about his coming being imminent. Jesus could come before the end of this day. Don't believe anybody that tells you that there's certain things that have to take place be- first before Jesus comes. Jesus could come back. It's imminent. Anytime. time. Paul was expecting it in his day. We ought to be expecting every single day. This could be the dawning of a brand new day. This could be the day that Jesus comes. People don't think about the imminent return. They don't think about their life being short. Everybody seems to think that they're immortal. They don't understand that we have not been guaranteed any number of years on this earth. I see a lot of different age people here today. I think every one of you fully expect to be alive tomorrow. You fully expect to be alive this year. You expect to see the end of 2018. I'm asking you, where do you get that guarantee? How tragic it would be if you don't see that. But where do you get that guarantee? And where is your confidence that you will be here in one year or one month or one week? And aren't we playing a gambling game where we are bound to lose if we are not ready every single day for the end of our life or for the coming of the Lord? Shouldn't that be the attitude we have every day that we live? Are you ready? People are wooed by Satan's lying suggestion they have plenty of time. Plenty of time is never a scriptural message. The scriptural message is one of urgency. It's always one of urgency. The scriptural message is time is precious and we must as good stewards, and this is good stewardship, we must as good stewards redeem the time we have. The final point is very simple. If you don't stray, you won't get caught. These people that were keeping the vineyard thought he... He's he's taking his time. He won't be here for a long time. He will not know the wild parties we threw. He may not notice we killed his slaves. (laughs) And we'll get our act together. When we realize he's coming, we'll get our act together and clean the place up and act like we've been real faithful stewards. And he made a surprise visit. And he caught him. Caught them with blood on their hands. Caught them drinking and partying and reveling and caught him. He caught them. And if you never stray, you don't have to worry about getting caught. It's just about good stewardship. Good stewardship of your life. Doing what God wants you to do every day that you live. Because every day that you do not live... Like this is your last day on earth and you are dressed and ready and cleansed and waiting for God to come. Every day that you don't live like that, you are gambling with eternity. How many days for the rest of your life do you choose to gamble? Would you bow your heads?